Well, good morning, church. It is uh, great to see all of you this morning and to be here worshiping with you. And I'm uh, certainly excited to be uh, preaching to you this morning, although I do wish it was under uh, different circumstances. Um, as Randy mentioned, Pastor Tim has been in the hospital for the last few days and had to have surgery um, yesterday. Um, I can tell you that the surgery did go well um, and that he had a, a good night last night and is feeling much better uh, this morning. Uh, but in the meantime, let us continue to pray for his healing and for his speedy return. And so uh, at this time, if you would please turn in your Bibles uh, with me to the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua chapter one, we'll read verses eight and nine. Again, the book of Joshua chapter one, starting in verse eight, and we'll read verses eight and nine. As we have made our way through this series um, on route 66, walking through the scriptures, one book at a time, our goal has been to gain a deeper understanding of the overarching narrative of scripture while identifying God's redemptive work throughout history, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So far in our journey, we have surveyed the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, which have largely focused on the ministry of Moses. And now with the wilderness generation having passed away and Moses passing the torch on to Joshua, we begin a new chapter in Israel's history. Now, back in Genesis 15, which we read for our scripture reading earlier, uh, in Genesis 15, as God called Abram and made a covenant with him, we see God promise to give him and his descendants the land of Canaan. Uh, specifically in verses 13 through 16, God says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We see God promise to make Abram into a great nation. And we see that though Abram's descendants would be afflicted, God would deliver them. And we finally see that they shall come back to take the land when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. And now in the book of Joshua, we see that the land has been prepared for the taking and God has raised up his man to lead the conquest of Canaan. So with that, let us go to our text in chapter one, starting in verse eight. Here is the word of the Lord. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you that you have been working throughout history to save your people, all to the praise of your glorious grace. As we look to your word this morning, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us. And I pray that the testimony of your word would deepen our faith and trust in you. We ask all of these things in the precious and holy name of your son, Jesus. Amen. To start, we'll take a brief overview of the book of Joshua as a whole. Uh, then we'll zero in on our primary text, which we just read. And then we'll close with a few points of application. So the book of Joshua is one of the more exciting books in the Bible. I can recall as a young boy being endlessly fascinated by the stories of conquest and victory. And while these things are certainly exciting to look at, we must keep in mind that the purpose of this book is not simply to entertain. Uh, rather, the purpose of this book is to reveal God to us and to point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
As we have noted before on several occasions, all of scripture, first and foremost, is about God. And its primary purpose is to reveal God to us. And along with that, we recognize that the scriptures center on the person and work of Jesus Christ. As all of the Old Testament is looking forward to him, anticipating all that he would accomplish in his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And all of the New Testament is either about him or is looking back to that accomplishment. So as we dive into the book of Joshua this morning, we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. Now, the book of Joshua was written sometime around the beginning of the 14th century, uh, roughly between probably 1400 BC and 1380 BC, somewhere in there. And it covers about a 25 year period from Israel's entrance into the promised land all the way to the death and burial of Joshua. There is much debate about who actually authored the book of Joshua, since the book itself does not identify its author. Um, I am personally of the opinion that it was penned by Joshua himself, uh, especially since we are told in Joshua 24 that uh, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. However, although the, book, uh, uh, the bulk of the book appears to be written by Joshua, it also appears that the book was uh, perhaps compiled or edited at a later time, uh, maybe by Eleazar or possibly his son, Phineas. At the end of the day, though, it does not really matter who the human author was. As believers, we know that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we recognize that it is ultimately God who is the author of this book. So whether it was Joshua who wrote this book or it was someone else, we can be certain that these words are the words of God. Now, the book of Joshua uh, serves three primary purposes. Uh, first, it serves a historical purpose. Uh, this book, like the other 12 historical books of the Bible, were written to accurately document the history of Israel. But this book not only serves as a historical record, it also serves to remind Israel and to instruct future generations concerning what God had done for them. Israel, like all of humanity, was prone to forgetfulness. And we saw this with the wilderness generation. Uh, while they were enslaved in Egypt, the people of Israel cried out to God for deliverance. And when, once they had, were actually delivered, they quickly forgot all that God had done and instead wanted to return back to their slave masters. So documenting the mighty acts of God for the purpose of reminding the people of how God had sovereignly worked to bring them to this place was absolutely crucial for them as a nation. So the book serves a historical purpose, but it also serves a doctrinal purpose. Uh, not only do we have an accurate record of these historical events, but these historical events are intended to tell us important things about God. Namely, that he is a God who keeps his promises and is faithful to accomplish all his purpose. As Israel would face difficulty, this record of God's faithfulness was to serve as an encouragement to them. When they would begin to doubt, they could look back and see God's goodness and faithfulness to them in the things that he had done. And we too, when we face obstacles and trials of various kinds, we can look at God's faithfulness to his people throughout history and be reminded of the fact that God was faithful then and he will continue to be faithful both now and forever. So we see the historical purpose of this book. We see the doctrinal purpose of this book. And finally, this book serves a Christological purpose. Not only must we understand this book on its own terms as a historical record of God's dealing with his people, but we must also understand the book in terms of the meta-narrative of the entire Bible. As we've already pointed out, all of scripture centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
So we must see Joshua as centering on the person and work of Jesus Christ as well. And we can see this in several ways. Uh, Not only do Joshua and Jesus share the same name, a name which means the Lord is salvation, but we see that Joshua serves as a type of Christ. Uh, For example, uh, Joshua held fast to the law of God, whereas Jesus walked in perfect obedience to the law, Romans 5, 19. Uh, Joshua provided a temporal salvation for God's people, whereas Christ provided an eternal salvation, Hebrews 5, 9. Joshua accomplished salvation for a small number of people, whereas Christ accomplished salvation for a great multitude that no one can number, Revelation 7, 9. So while Joshua was a great man of God and he serves as, as an example of godly leadership, we must see how he primarily points us to the greater Joshua, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So chapter one of this book begins with God's calling of Joshua. And as God calls Joshua to lead his people, we see God promise to be with him. Joshua then reiterates God's promises to his people and the people respond with a recognition of Joshua as God's man and commit themselves to obey all that he commands them. Then in chapter two, we see Israel begin to make their entrance into the land. They uh, start by sending two spies ahead, uh, ahead of them who are helped by the prostitute Rahab. We see Rahab align herself with the people of God and she is commended for her faith and is actually brought into the fold of God's people. And just as a quick note, uh, by Rahab being made a part of God's people and by her inclusion in the genealogy of Christ, we see an Old Testament hint that God always intended to include the Gentiles in his plan of salvation. Again, the promises to Abram were not only that he and his offspring would be blessed, but that through his offspring, all of the nations would be blessed. Then in chapter three, we see Israel cross the Jordan on dry ground. And in chapter four, they build an altar as a memorial for future generations so that they may know this miraculous work of God. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the importance of erecting monuments to commemorate and remember the works of God. And this is a really good practice for us today. Um, While we don't necessarily build altars anymore, it is important that we mark and memorialize the things God has done for us, for us so that we and our children will remember his loving kindness. As we've already mentioned, we as humans are prone to forgetfulness. So we must remember what God has done in our lives so that we are not carried away by the worries of this life. Then in chapter five, we see the men of Israel are circumcised. And this is particularly interesting because um, at this point, Israel had already been given the law and they knew the requirements for circumcision as laid out in Leviticus 12. Uh, Yet we read in Joshua 5 verse 5 that all of the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt, they had not been circumcised. So we see the wickedness and disobedience of the wilderness generation as they disobeyed the word of God concerning the circumcision of their children. We must also realize that if this new generation was to partake in the covenant promises to Abraham, then they too must receive the covenant sign of Abraham. And if they were to enter the land uh, that was promised to Abraham and to his children, then they must become children of Abraham through circumcision. And in that same way, if we are to partake of the blessings and promises that find their yes and amen in Christ, then we must be circumcised in heart with the circumcision not done by human hands, as Paul tells us in Romans. We then see the first uh, Passover celebration in the land of Canaan. And in verses 13 through 15, we see Joshua's encounter with the commander of Yahweh's army. Notice how in verse 14 of chapter five, we read that Joshua fell on his face and worshiped. 
This indicates that this commander was likely uh, more than just an angel and perhaps was a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while there are several instances of angelic encounters uh, throughout the text of scripture, we need to see two things about this particular encounter that distinguish it from the others and that point to this heavenly being as being more than just an angel. Uh, first, we see that the commander receives the worship. Contrast that with the angel in John's revelation. In Revelation 19, John 2 fell down and began to worship an angel. But he is quickly rebuked and he's told in verse 10, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Instead, you must worship God. Unlike that encounter, uh, this angel, right, this commander of Yahweh's army receives Joshua's worship. And secondly, the commander instructs Joshua to remove his sandals for he was standing on holy ground. This should bring to mind Moses' encounter at the burning bush. As the presence of God was manifest in the bush, we see the ground made holy. And now because of the presence of this commander, the ground is once again made holy. Again, the presence of a mere angel would not have made the ground holy. So while I would certainly not make this a, a litmus test for orthodoxy, I think we can plainly see that this commander was no mere angel, but instead was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. Then in chapter six, we see Israel begin to conquer the land beginning with Jericho. And after their victory there, we see their defeat at Ai in chapter seven. We ultimately find out that it was because of the sin of Achan that they suffered defeat. We must keep in mind that their success was directly tied to their obedience to God, as we were told in chapter one. We must also see that the effects of sin go far beyond the individual committing the sin and instead has devastating effects on all those around them. And so because of Achan's sin and because of his desire for the things of the Canaanites, he received a judgment like that of the Canaanites and was put to death. And once the sin is dealt with, we see Israel continue to experience victory. Uh, uh, they defeat Ai in chapter eight. And in chapter nine, we see the kings of the land unite together against Israel. Uh, then in chapter 10, we see the sun stand still so that Israel may be victorious in battle. Uh, this miracle, along with Israel's victory at Jericho, despite having an absurd military strategy, uh, these things remind us that the battle and the victory belongs to the Lord. We saw in chapter one that God would be with them and that he would cause them to be victorious. And in the same way that God performed many signs and acts of judgment as he delivered Israel from Egypt, we see God's power and might on display as he continues to fight for his people and grant them victory. We then see the conquest of Northern and Southern Canaan in chapter 11 and chapter 12 lists the entire conquest of Moses and Joshua, highlighting the victory of God through his servants. We then see the division of the land in chapters 13 through 21. Again, while sections like these can be very cumbersome uh, to work through, uh, we need to see these sections as providing for us a record of God fulfilling his promises to Abraham. As the people settled in the land and the tribes of Israel received their inheritance, we are reminded of the fact that God is faithful to his word. Then in chapter 22, we see the Eastern tribes return home and the construction of their altar of witness and in chapter 23, Joshua charges Israel to continue the conquest of the land. He tells them in verses four through nine, behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the West. The Lord, your God, will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord, your God promised to you. 
Therefore be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. We see that in the same way that Joshua was charged to obey the law of God and he was promised success should he do so. We see Israel too was commanded to keep and to do all that is written in the law and to cling to the Lord, their God. And finally, in chapter 24, we see the covenant renewed at Shechem as Joshua and the people commit themselves to obey the Lord. Joshua reminds them in verses 19 and 20 that they are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God who will not forgive their transgressions or their sins. If they forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do them harm and consume them after having done them good. Yet despite this warning, the people insist that they will serve the Lord. So Joshua takes a stone and places it as a witness against the people, should they deal falsely with the Lord. And the book ends with the death and burial of Joshua. So uh, now, now that we've seen kind of a, a quick overview of the book, uh, let's turn to our primary text in Joshua uh, 1, verses 8 and 9. Now, this first chapter of Joshua really sets the stage for the rest of the book, as all of the events of this book really flow from what takes place in this first chapter. So as the chapter opens, we see God call Joshua to lead his people, and he assures Joshua that he will be with him. While we do see some similarities, uh, there is a big contrast between the calling of Joshua and the calling of Moses. Uh, Moses was called uh, while he was on the run and in hiding, whereas Joshua was was called after years of preparation and training as the assistant to Israel's leader. Moses was called to deliver the people of God from their affliction, while Joshua was called to lead God's people to victory as they possessed the land of promise. Moses was hesitant, and he even went as far as to ask God to send somebody else. Whereas Joshua was prepared to lead the people of God and showed no hesitation in trusting the Lord. We also see that though Joshua is called to be Israel's leader, he was not to be a law unto himself. Uh, Rather, he was called to be one under authority, namely the authority of God's word. As he is told not, uh, not to depart from the law, either to the right or to the left. And Matthew Henry, when commenting on this passage, uh, says this, quote, Joshua was a great man, uh, was a man of great power and authority. Yet he himself must be under command and do as he is bidden. No man's dignity or dominion, how great soever sets him above the law of God. Joshua must not only govern by the law and take care that the people observed the law, but he must observe it himself. And so by his own example, maintain the honor and power of it, end quote. So Joshua was to be in complete submission to the law word of God. And as such, he was to lead God's people by setting an example for them. Again, we can see here Joshua as a type of Christ. In the same way that Joshua was to lead by exemplifying righteousness through obedience. Jesus leads us, but not simply by setting an example of righteousness, but by becoming sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So not only is Joshua a type of Christ, but we see that Christ is the greater Joshua. And in verse eight, God tells him, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, 
but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And this really is the central verse of the entire book of Joshua. How is Israel, right? A nation of nomads and wanderers. How are they to conquer an established and entrenched nation? By holding fast to the word of God. Notice how Joshua is told to keep the book of the law in his mouth. Uh, At first, when I read this, uh, I thought this was somewhat of a strange phrase. Uh, What does it mean for Joshua to keep the law of God in his mouth? I think it certainly means that uh, the word of God should define Joshua's speech, uh, both in his commands as Israel's leader, uh, as well as just in normal conversation. But I also think it means so much more than that. We know from the New Testament that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Luke 6.45. So if the law was to be kept by Joshua. And if it was to to define everything that came from his mouth, then it must also be deeply rooted in his heart. In other words, the only way for Joshua to keep the law of God in his mouth was for him to hide the law of God in his heart. And we also see that he is not only charged to know the law and to keep the law in his mouth, but also to do according to all that is written in it. Again, Matthew Henry comments, quote, Joshua must observe to do according to all this law. To this end, he must meditate therein, not for contemplation's sake only, or to fill his head with notions, or that he might find something to puzzle the priest with, but that he might both, as a man and a magistrate, observe to do according to what was written therein. He must do what was written. It is not enough to hear and read the word, to commend and admire it, to know and remember it, to talk and to discourse of it, but he must do it, end quote. And Joshua was told that should he hold fast to the word of God, his success would be certain. And as we surveyed the book, we saw that this was true. When the people of Israel departed from the law of God and cultivated sin within the camp, they suffered defeat. And when they walked in obedience to all that God had commanded of them, they were victorious. And this pattern of blessing and cursing, blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience is not only here in the book of Joshua, but it's throughout the Old Testament. God then tells Joshua to be strong and courageous. And, that, and, what, and what was to be the source, right? What was to be the source of his courage? It was the knowledge that God was with him. As God was with Moses when he faced down Pharaoh's courts, as God protected Israel by splitting the Red Sea so that they could cross on dry ground, And as God preserved his people in the wilderness, God would be with Joshua no matter what he faced. We see in these verses, right? We see that Joshua's life was to be wholly dependent upon God. His success was reliant upon the word of God. His victory was dependent upon the power of God and his courage was rooted in the presence of God. Apart from God, Joshua could do nothing. But because of God's sovereign rule in his life, Joshua was victorious. So we've taken a quick overview of the book as a whole, and we've seen in our text how Joshua was to achieve success. And we came to understand that it was ultimately because of God providing his word, providing his power, and by providing his presence that Joshua was victorious. And while these things are informative and and interesting, we have to make sure that we are asking the question, what does this mean for us? How should we take what we've heard and apply it to our lives. Because as Matthew Henry pointed out, it's not enough to hear the word of the Lord, to talk about it, to contemplate it. We must be doers also. And if we have failed to be doers of the word, 
that we have deceived ourselves, as James tells us. And if I, as one of your pastors, proclaim the word of God to you and fail and fall short of applying that word, then I have been negligent in my duties. As I've heard one preacher put it, a sermon with no application is not a sermon, it's a lecture. We must be careful to take what is given to us in the word of God, and then we must apply it. As Jesus said, everyone who hears his words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. On the other hand, everyone who hears the, his words and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We must be like the wise man and build our life upon the sure foundation of God's word. We must not simply hear the word, but we must take the word and apply it to our lives. So what are the things that we can take away from what we've heard this morning and how can we apply it? Well, first and foremost, we must see that like Joshua, if we are to succeed in all that God commands of us, then we too must hold fast to the word of God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, did he just say what I think he said? Did he just say that if we hold fast to the word of God, he'll give us health and wealth and prosperity? No, I did not. Okay, listen, listen closely. I did not say that if we hold fast to the word of God, we will be successful in all we do. I said, if we hold fast to the word of God, we will be successful in all that he commands of us. We see in the book of Joshua that Joshua was placed in a particular place at a particular time with particular commands. And his success in accomplishing those commands was directly tied to his fidelity to and alignment with God's word. Similarly, we too have been placed in a particular place at a particular time with particular commands. And what are some of those commands? What has God commanded of his people in this new covenant age? Be holy, for I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, James 1.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, Ephesians 5, 22. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5, 25. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. If we, like Joshua, are to succeed in all that God commands of us, then we, like Joshua, must hold fast to God's word. Let's take a moment to be honest with ourselves. Have we hidden God's word in our heart so that it may not depart from our mouths? Do we have the word of God as central to our everyday lives or are our lives centered on something else like work or politics? Do we meditate on God's word day and night? Or are our minds filled with Netflix shows and social media posts? Do we teach God's word to our children when we sit in our houses and when we walk by the way and when we lie down and when we rise? Or are we more concerned with making sure they get a good scholarship into a good school? Are we careful to know and to study the word of God so that we may walk in obedience to him? Or have we relegated the study of God's word to the professional Christians? Have we prioritized the word of God in our lives? And have we allowed it to be the standard by which we order our lives? Or have we departed from the word of God and instead placed our trust in the word of man? And let's be honest, we all have a tendency to drift 
from trusting in God and instead placing our trust in man. Sometimes we do this by relying on our own strength rather than finding our strength in God. Sometimes we do it by believing that if we can just get the right man in the right political position, then we'll be saved rather than recognizing that the Lord is salvation. Sometimes we look for man-made solutions to the problems we face rather than recognizing that the true problem is the sin in our own hearts. Again, as Pastor Tim likes to say, don't look at me spiritual. God has given us his word and it is the only sure foundation for our lives. If we, if we are to succeed in all that God commands of us and if we are to weather the storms of this life and trust me, the storms are coming, then our lives must be built upon the word of God. Secondly, we need to remember the faithfulness of God to his people and remember that he is with us. As God was giving Joshua his marching orders, he continually reassures Joshua that he will be with him. He tells him that he will powerfully work on Israel's behalf and that he will provide everything they need in his word and that his presence will be the source of their strength and courage. In other words, God does not give Joshua commands and then just leave him on his own to figure it out, right? Instead, God provided everything Joshua needed to accomplish what God had commanded of him. And that reality is still true today. When God calls a sinner to himself and raises him from his spiritual deadness to new life so that he may walk according to his statutes and be careful to obey his rules, he doesn't leave the new believer on his own to figure it out. Instead, what does the prophet Ezekiel tell us in Ezekiel 36, 26? How would God's people walk according to his statutes and be careful to obey his rules? By God giving them his spirit and a new heart. We need to see that God has not left us on our own, but he has given us a new heart and he has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us and to guide us in all that we do. We have not been left alone to walk through this life in our own strength and by our own power. Rather, God gives us everything we need to walk with him. He gave us his word so that we might know him. He gave us his son so that we might be saved. His son gave us his righteousness so that we would have an alien righteousness imputed to us. His son gave up his life so that our sins would be atoned for. And he gives us his Holy Spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father, to comfort us, to encourage us, to illuminate God's word to us, to sanctify us and to point us to Christ. As Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he reminded them that for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul was making clear that salvation from the beginning to the end, from the foreknowledge of God to our glorification, glorification together with Christ, salvation is all of God. We need to see that in the same way that Joshua was victorious because God was with him. We too have been victorious because God is with us and has given us everything we need. And finally, I want to redirect our attention back to the end of Joshua. As the people settled in the land, they committed themselves to obey God. And what was Joshua's response to them? His response was, you can't do it. He tells them that they cannot serve the Lord. And we know from their history that they did not serve the Lord. Rather, they were quickly carried away by sin and idolatry. And this reality is still true today. In and of ourselves, we, like Israel, are unable to serve the Lord. We are unable to keep his statutes. We are unable to keep his word in our mouths. We are unable to walk in obedience to his word. And that's why God sent his son. 
We see in the book of Joshua that God went before Joshua because in and of himself, Joshua could not accomplish victory for God's people. For Joshua to experience victory, he needed God to uh, act mightily on his behalf. And we too, if we are to experience victory over our sin, then, and if we are to succeed in all that God commands of us, then we need God to act mightily on our behalf. And the truth is, is that God has acted mightily on our behalf in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. God sent his son to this earth to live a perfect life of obedience to the law, purchasing for us an alien righteousness. Now just think about that for a moment. Joshua's success was tied to his obedience. But because of Christ, our success is purchased for us because of Christ's obedience. Yet despite his perfection, right? Christ was punished as a sinner under the law, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserved for our sin. Think back to Achan. Achan was severely punished for his sin. And we too should be severely punished for our sin. We have been disobedient and thus we should reap the cursing for disobedience. But we experience God's goodness and blessing because Christ became a curse for us and took the wrath of God on our behalf. And though he died, he did not stay dead, but he rose again on the third day, securing for us an eternal salvation. And unlike Joshua, who secured a temporary victory for the people of Israel, Christ has secured an eternal victory. Now that's good news, folks. The good news for Joshua was that God would give him everything he needed to be victorious. And the good news for God's people today is not that we may be victorious, but that Christ has already won the victory for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gospel. Though we are undeserving sinners who can turn, continually turn aside from your word, we thank you that you took on flesh to save us. We thank you that our victory over sin and our victory in accomplishing all that you have commanded of us has been eternally secured by you. I pray that we would rest in that truth. And for those who do not know you this morning, I pray that they would see the severity of their sin and the need for that sin to be judged. And I pray that from that place, they would see that the Lord is salvation, that they would cease from their striving and place their faith and trust in you, recognizing that you have accomplished the victory. Continue to be with Pastor Tim as he recovers. And as he has faithfully ministered to us, would you use us as your instruments to faithfully minister to him? In your precious and holy name, we pray all of these things. Amen.